Welcome to Designing Microservices with Serverless. My name is David Nasi. I'm a senior product manager on AWS Serverless. And today I'm also going to be joined by Nick Kilnani, who's a senior director at NG Partners. And he's going to share later with us his team experience with uh, serverless and building serverless microservices. So let's get started. but. Uh, Let's first uh, do some baselining and kind of define what microservices actually, uh, what, what this term actually means. So microservices is an architectural approach which uh, advocates for uh, creation of applications as a suite of independent services that interact with each other over the internet uh, typically using REST APIs. And these services can be uh, and should be uh, managed independently with minimal amount of uh, central organization. Moreover, they can be delivered and, and deployed independently as well. They're scoped uh, as part of, uh, under a bounded context of different business capabilities. And uh, a good microservice should have some characteristics which make it more resilient to failures, uh, which makes your entire application more resilient to failures. But that doesn't really tell us about why you want to kind of embark on a journey of implementing a microservices architecture. So let's kind of spend some time talking about that. Essentially, there are two very high-level goals that you would like to pursue uh, when you're moving away from uh, having a monolithic architecture uh, going into microservices. From the business perspective, you want to um, increase the pace of your innovation and the time to market to bring you know, new, new features and new capabilities for your customers. From an organizational perspective, um, Microservices encourage end-to-end -end ownership, uh, which empowers your teams to uh, own the service end-to-end -end from, um, from um, um, development to, op uh, to operations to testing and everything that the software development lifecycle involves. And they are free to choose you know, uh, the right tools to actually solve uh, the problems that, uh, uh, that, uh, they're, that they're out to solve. Now, getting to kind of achieving these goals uh, dictates that your microservices should adhere to some uh, you know, high-level architectural pillars. And these are the pillars that we're going to discuss today uh, from a serverless lens. And those pillars are uh, resilience and how you make your entire application more resilient and how you make uh, the individual microservices more resilient. Scalability is another one. And here you really want to make sure that um, your microservices are able to scale independently according to the uh, resources and the traffic that they require instead of uh, scaling the entire application and 
the third one is continuous delivery, uh, which enables you to deliver changes uh, frequently but safely and reducing the, um, the cost of, of, of errors. So now kind of let's bring uh, you know, serverless into the picture and how all of this relates to serverless. So essentially with a serverless approach, you get a lot of the best practices that you want in your microservices out of the box. And the mental model with which you think about serverless applications very much aligns with the mental model that you want to have for microservices. And so the other best practices that you want to have are much easier to achieve and reason about. One point to make, though, is serverless is definitely is not a silver bullet. So uh, you still need to uh, you know, write your code efficiently and diligently and uh, properly log and monitor your applications um, and, and test and so on. So all these still apply. So having kind of set the context for our conversation today, let's kind of start reviewing these pillars and how you can um, achieve them in a serverless microservice. And the first one we're going to talk about is, uh, is resilience. When you implement your architecture in, uh, as, as part of, uh, in a microservices fashion, they're interacting over the network. And network has some intrinsic um, qualities to it, which include um, you know, that you, you can't rely on the network uh, being reliable all the time, and you cannot rely on uh, it having you know, consistent latencies um, uh, at all times. And so uh, since these are the characteristics, you want to introduce additional robustness to your microservices and how they interact with each other. And these are architecting them for high availability, applying throttles for, uh, for your microservices and the calls that they make, and employ retries and, and timeouts. And these are the essentials of uh, implementing a, a good distributed architecture. So let's see how that kind of looks in a serverless uh, uh, world. When you build your applications and microservices on Lambda, you essentially get high availability out of the box. A lot of the things that, uh, a lot of the best practices and things you need to uh, implement in a traditional server full applications, uh, like um, you know, implementing your application to work across multiple availability zones um, and introducing additional redundancy, Lambda does all of that for you. And that applies both to Lambda, the service, and the functions that it runs for you. So uh, it, it runs uh, at default across, in each AWS region across all the availability zones and has additional redundancy and resiliency. So th that's great when you run in one region. But if you want to deploy your stack globally, there are some additional things that you might want to consider in order to have a, a truly global deployment. Now let me share with you how you get, can get to a global deployment with serverless application. 
So in this diagram, what you see is that we have a microservice which is composed of an API gateway HTTP endpoint, which is backed by a Lambda function. And what we have here is a microservice that is deployed, uh, it's the same microservice deployed across two regions, US East 1 and US West 2. Now, uh, here we're utilizing a uh, feature that we just recently released in API Gateway, which allows you to set a custom domain, which will be um, integrated with uh, both regional endpoints of HTTP, uh, of a API Gateway. And you can see here that you know, we have DNS entries in our Route 53 setup, uh, which point our custom domain, which is called Hello World API dot replace with your own company name. Uh, we have that uh, configured for both the US East 1 and the US West 2 uh, regions. So what does that give us? Essentially now we can use routing policies within Route 53 uh, that are available there. So you can apply, uh, you know, latency-based uh, latency routing. You can apply weight-based uh, weight routing, um, and it will distribute the calls according to the uh, routing that you define. So now we have, you know, truly globally deployed uh, serverless microservice, but. It's still not the full picture. We, we now want to introduce additional resiliency across AWS regions for a case where in one of the regions our microservice is experiencing disruption and uh, availability. So how do we go about that? Well, Route 53 now allows us to set health checks across the different endpoints. So it will ping each microservice in each of the regions uh, with a request and expect, and expect some sort of a response. And if the response is as expected, then it concludes that um, the service is healthy. And what you see here is a snippet from a CloudFormation template which sets that health check. And as we have that, now whenever you know, one of the services doesn't behave as expected, the traffic will be routed to uh, services that are uh, deployed in other regions. So here we have implemented additional resiliency on top of what we get with just the re regional deployment. And we have an active, active failover setup here. The next best practice is, is throttling. And uh, let's first kind of talk about why do we even need throttling. In a microservices setup, we have uh, microservices interacting with other microservices over the network. And the microservice that you own uh, might be talking to microservices that are owned by completely other teams. And these services have different uh, guarantees on, on, on the uh, amount of traffic that they can serve. So as an owner of a microservice, you want to make sure that your service doesn't get overwhelmed by a, a sudden influx of requests. And the, in order, uh, the way to go about it is to implement throttling, throttling logic within the microservice. <coughs> 
in, in, the, in this example that I'm showing, we have a front-end service which interacts with other three services, uh, which all may have varying levels of uh, traffic that they can support. So you know, in a traditional sense, uh, when you uh, implement your microservices, throttling is hard to instrument, both on the uh, client logic, which makes the calls, and the uh, downstream service that, that receives them. And let's go over some of the things that you need to implement in order to have throttling. So on the back end, you want to manage API keys to keep track of the users that are calling your APIs. Moreover, uh, for each user, you want to have uh, measurements of the steady rates that they make and kind of be able to put limitation on that, and also for uh, burst rates. And if you really want to go granular about it, then you want to have all these capabilities for each method of your APIs. On the client side, you want to identify when the, call you, the calls you make uh, get throttled and adjust the behavior accordingly. So it's not an easy task, but when you build on top of serverless, uh, you know, this comes out of the box. And in this example, you know, what you're seeing is uh, how we can define a usage plan within API Gateway, which does all of that for you as part of the configuration of your API. So you can set throttling for the overall request rate and set kind of uh, burst buckets. And you can also set quotas for uh, a, a period of time. And you can do so also you know, very granularly across different API stages that you have. So that's good kind of for, for the downstream service, how, how it can protect itself. But then how do we monitor you know, whether the calls that we make and what the rate of those calls that get throttled? And here, uh, you can use AWS X-Ray for generating a service map of, um, that illustrates you know, the entire, um, your entire distributed application. And in, in this example, we, we have a very simple setup where we have a Lambda function calling to uh, a DynamoDB table and Amazon recognition. So this is just an example of a service map that you can see. And um, it shows us you know, very useful information on you know, average latencies that calls uh, take and uh, a whole bunch of other very, very good information. But in this example, what I want to draw your attention to is kind of the purple part of, of the calls that are made to recognition DynamoDB. Uh, which are uh, essentially, which represent throttle calls. So you can now understand that you have an issue with your DynamoDB table, uh, um, which throttles the requests that are made to it. And you can then take action to remediate that. For example, uh, one thing you can do is increase the, um, uh, the capacity, the, the read capacity of your DynamoDB table to uh, make sure calls are successful. The next topic we're going to talk about is how you set right timeouts and retries. And again, going back to my earlier point about network not being reliable, 
um, th that you know, requires you to implement both timeouts and retries. Without setting any timeouts, your application might just uh, hang on a call and on a response that will never arrive. If you set the timeouts for too short of a period of time, then you might you know, uh, discard or retry for uh, responses that, that are arriving. So it's important to get that right. And there are some best practices to how you want to go about it. Um, it's very hard to determine what is the optimal timeout that you want to have as you deploy your applications to production. It's something that is very hard to even test in uh, a staging environment because the way network behaves in production is different. So the best practice here is really to log diligently, set default timeouts uh, that look you know, sort of okay to you uh, at start and then log diligently when timeouts occur and adjust the behavior of your application accordingly. And for uh, for retry and then for retries, you you want to have a retries that uh, employ exponential backoff, so uh, you do not overwhelm um, the services that you are making calls to. Now, when you employ timeouts and retries, duplicates uh, duplicate requests might arrive to to your uh, microservice, and you want to be prepared for that too. So you want to have some sort of logic that deals with that, whether you, know, you make some, um, you apply some IDs to requests that, that, uh, that you see or any other logic that does that. And again, let's kind of apply uh, everything that we discussed so far on uh, timeouts and retries for serverless and how that looks in a serverless world. So with Lambda, you can actually set timeouts for your functions as part of the configuration of your, of your function. And what that gives you is that now you don't have to have that as part of your code. So you can keep good hygiene inside your code where you know, uh, this, uh, this kind of orchestration logic is moved to the configuration part. So your code uh, is, like, maintains uh, um, good readability um, and you can focus on writing you know, business logic which differentiates your application. When you use the asynchronous invocation mode for Lambda, and this is a mode which you, know, you can use with the APIs that Lambda provides or also are associated with some of the kind of very popular event sources that Lambda supports like S3 and SNS. So for the asynchronous uh, invocation mode, uh, you get retries out of the box. So if a me message is not processed the first time, Lambda will keep retrying uh, up to three times until it is successful. And moreover, uh, you can then set dead letter queues for messages that weren't processed successfully and discard them there, and then set redrive policies for uh, that dead letter queue to kind of process those events as well. Now, if you want to have you know, a very elaborate orchestration of your different microservices and Lambda functions, you can use things like AWS Dev functions for that. And, and this is really kind of building on that capability of you know, focusing on business logic 
and uh, abstracting away state and orchestration to, uh, to, to be something separate that is managed separately. In this particular example, what we see is a create account uh, uh, flow where a user tries to create an account. And if the user is successful, then you send a welcome email. And each of those rectangular nodes is actually a Lambda function, which only focuses on that you know, very specific business logic. Now, if a welcome email, if a create account attempt is failed, then uh, the step function state machine will invoke a catch clause, which then uh, would run the suggest account name function, which would suggest the user a valid account name. So you can see we have a fairly elaborate orchestration here, which has nothing to do with our code and is managed separately. So we talked about kind of resiliency, reliability, and the second pillar we're going to discuss now is, is scalability. And as I mentioned previously, the characteristic that you want your application to have is that each microservice can uh, scale independently. And again, discussing that in the serverless context, that again comes something that, uh, that, that you get you know, as an inbuilt capability. If you have your microservices implemented as Lambda functions, then each Lambda function will get its own you know, scaling behavior uh, that comes with uh, uh, built-in metrics <clears throat> and logging. And so you know, this is a very desirable state that as you get started, all of that comes uh, built in. Now, Lambda will scale according to the number of events that it receives, and it will do so automatically on, on, on your behalf. Uh, so you never get to pay for idle because you know, each Lambda invocation actually does some work. But that scaling behavior uh, has some characteristics which I want to discuss with you because it might empower you to have uh, some additional uh, tools and a good mental model to uh, improve the performance of your uh, serverless microservices. So how does actually Lambda scale? Lambda uh, functions uh, essentially are arch architected on a container architecture. <clears throat> that is uh, abstracted away from you, so you do, do not need to kind of uh, manage any of that logic. But uh, when a, a new event um, uh, comes in into your uh, uh, Lambda function, it will try to process it on one of the containers that it used to process previous events. And between invocations of a function, it will uh, usually freeze those containers for some time and, and keep them in anticipation that more events will come in. If you're now creating a completely new function or a version of a function, or your application suddenly sees a big scale-up event uh, where Lambda does not have sufficient number of worm containers to process those, it will create a new container. The former case that I described where it uses an existing container, uh, we will refer to as a warm start. And uh, the latter case, we call it a cold start. 
And uh, there is some misconception when I talk to customers about uh, those, those two. Um, and the misconception is that customers kind of sometimes think that cold starts, you know, is a, is a big thing and has a profound impact. But actually, you know, the vast majority of the invocations for an application that has any meaningful traffic will result in warm starts. So this is really an area where you want to put your focus on improving the performance of your applications. <clears throat> um, but there are some things uh, to know about cold starts as well. So let's kind of look at the anatomy of a cold start. So what happens during a cold start? Lambda, the service, will download the code into the newly provisioned container. So it will download the code and start the container. And then it will initialize the runtime on which it runs and run all the global scope initialization included in your code. And only then it will invoke the, uh, your handler code, and that's kind of where your business logic lies. So I'm telling you all this because now I want to sh share with you some best practices on um, optimizing the performance of your uh, applications for, both for cold starts and warm starts. So, Let's start with discussing cold starts and the things you can do there. The theme here really is that you want to minimize the, uh, uh, the complexity of the dependencies that you put as part of your depend, uh, deployment packages. One example for compiled languages such as Java and .NET would be to use the modularity of the AWS SDK, uh, which allows you to import only the uh, modules that you actually use in your function. So as an example, if you use only S3, uh, if you only uh, call to S3 uh, from your function, then you only need those libraries uh, to be imported into your deployment package. By doing so, you can shave off the size of your deployment package from you know, 100, of, 100 of megabytes or so to you know, single digit numbers. And that would allow you know, a faster uh, download time for, for your uh, code and uh, also improve the initialization time. Building on that, you really want to reduce kind of the complexity of the initialization of your code. So instead of using you know, heavyweight uh, frameworks like Spring, uh, again, in the Java world, for dependency injection, you might want to use something lightweight like Dagger instead. So, uh, that's another way to go about it. So we talked about how you can improve your cold start behavior. Let's now talk about warm start because that's really the, the, the common case. And here, here what you really want to make sure that within your handler code, uh, the one that gets uh, invoked across uh, your invocations, you keep that code as lightweight as possible and you don't perform any initialization that can be done prior. I shared with you kind of the container reuse uh, um, strategy that Lambda um, has, and that, that gives you a lot of capability to keep kind of soft state within your, uh, uh, within your code, within your global scope code. So things like you know, global variables, or establishing connections to databases uh, or connections to an HTTP endpoint. All those should be done outside of your uh, handler code. And then within the handler code, you only check that this is 
this initialization is still valid or that connection is still valid and only reestablish that uh, if necessary. So we talked about scaling, and I hope now you have kind of more tools um, to uh, apply some performance improvements to your serverless microservices. The third pillar that I'd like to talk about is continuous delivery. And this is really the core of microservices, because the entire purpose is to deliver changes more rapidly and increase the pace of innovation. And as you go about can, you know, uh, instrumenting a service, uh, instrumenting a process, continuous delivery process for your microservice, you, want, you might want to consider four milestones uh, against which you want to measure you know, how good your process is. And let's quickly go over those milestones. First, your process should be uh, the way you model your application or microservice and the way that you think about your deployment process should be relatively easy to interpret. You also want to make sure that you are making frequent changes and do so in small batches. And those should have scoped impact to reduce risk of bad changes. And finally, to bring it all together, you want to automate the entire process. So how can we achieve all these four milestones um, in a serverless microservice? So let's talk about that and start with the first milestone. And there I want to talk to you about uh, SAM, which is this cute squirrel, but it's also the serverless application model. And the serverless application model lets you have a template where you can uh, define all the uh, resources that are involved in uh, building your uh, microservice. This framework uh, is um, supported by CloudFormation. So once you templatize your application, and, and uh, you can also then version it and share it with, with other teams, uh, you can also use CloudFormation as uh, the deployment engine for your serverless applications. So I talked a little bit at high level, but here's an example of how a SAM template can look like. This SAM template really defines you know, basic microservices, a microservice which involves a uh, Lambda function uh, connected to an API gate, gateway endpoint and a DynamoDB table. And here you see that uh, you know, it's very digestible, easy to inspect, and it defines all the properties of that microservice, including where the code for it lives, what is the runtime that is used to run your Lambda function? What are the IAM policies that it requires? Uh, what is the integration type that it has with the event source, which is a API and uh, a gateway endpoint? And you also define your Dynamo table. And going back to my point, now, now this is something that you can really version and as you implement additional changes and add additional resources to it, then that can be captured in one place. <clears throat> so now we can put a check on that milestone. Uh, let's now look at how we can deliver changes frequently in small batches. And here we meet our old friend, the squirrel again. But here, uh, this is a, uh, part of uh, SEMLocal which is a local framework for you to test your applications and microservices 
uh, on your workstation before you move them to the cloud. What this framework gives you is the ability to test your functions in an environment that has high fidelity to the execution environment of the cloud lambda and uh, do all the testing there uh, before you're ready to perform a deployment to the cloud. And it comes with a lot of kind of capabilities that emulate the actual uh, cloud lambda behavior, like timeouts and memory limits and runtimes, and also supports API gateway for the, the proxy integration type of API gateway. And so, uh, as you test your um, function, you can then access logs locally on your workstation and really iterate very rapidly um, that way. Great. So the third, uh, the third um, thing that I want to talk to you is now how can you have scoped, um, how you can make changes that have scoped impact. And here I'm really excited to share with you a feature that is coming soon to AWS Lambda. And by soon, I mean later today, uh, which allows you to define um, pre-assigned uh, rates with which traffic will be routed to your versions of your function. So we already have a concept in Lambda which is called aliases. And alias is really a mapping to a certain version of your function. So just as an example, you can have a prod alias which points to a certain version of your function. And then you have a staging alias which points to another version. But before, uh, something that you had to do when you deployed and wanted to deploy a new version to production is that you had to go all in. You had to route all the traffic to the new version to which that alias points to. With this feature, you can now point to two versions of your function. And as you roll out uh, new versions of functions, you can assign specific uh, percentage of how much of the traffic will now be routed to it. And with this capability, you can uh, employ some of the you know, deployment best practices, such as blue-green deployments or canary deployments and so on. So I talked a lot, uh, but I, I now want to kind of show you how that actually looks like. So in this example, we have a function called my function and an alias. And we have only one version of that function. And we have an alias which points to that version that's called my alias. <coughs> Sorry. And now we iterate on, on our function and we add some additional capabilities to it and want to uh, promote that, um, uh, that version. So what do we do is we update the function code and we publish that as a new version of our function. And so far it's all kind of familiar lambda. But that third API call that you see here is what this feature is all about. So now we say to our alias, point to version number two and uh, make 5% of the traffic that you see uh, be routed to that specific version. And now you can really monitor your Lambda function for any increased error rates. And as you gain more confidence with how that new version performs, 
uh, route more and more traffic to it until uh, your entire, uh, all of the traffic is routed to the newer version. Great, so now let's kind of see how that all comes together in, in um, a process, in how you can automate your deployments fully. And here I wanna talk to you about um, using AWS code pipeline to build robust pipelines for deploying your serverless microservices. So we already talked about how with some templates you can now kind of version them and by putting them in a code repository uh, along with the function code uh, uh, and then connecting them to your delivery pipeline what will happen in that situation is that with each commit that you make to your code, it will trigger an automated run of the pipeline and uh, deploy your code uh, to the different environments. And you, have, uh, you can have multiple environments, such as a beta environment or a staging environment, production environment. And a typical flow of that would be that um, your code and the SEM template will be uh, built and packaged and you can have you know, multiple uh, options there, and uh, you, can have, you can connect your Jenkins uh, uh, to work as part of your pipeline, or you can use a fully managed service such as AWS CodeBuild to um, compile, build, and te unit test your code, and then package it. And then across the different environments, you have integration uh, 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 with CloudFormation that can perform the actual deployment. So here, uh, what you can see, uh, an illustration of you know, an environment which we call beta, uh, which creates a CloudFormation change set and then deploys that set. And the last step is that we're running some tests uh, against the newly changed code. And you can gradually onboard this until you achieve full automation, and what uh, one capability of code pipeline uh, that you have, if you don't feel that you're ready to go you know, in a full automated way, is manual approvals that let you pause the deployment uh, before it hits production and do some additional testing. Great, so now we have uh, a good and robust continuous delivery um, process for delivering our uh, serverless microservices. So we talked about the three architectural pillars with which you want to think about your serverless microservices. And let's kind of now uh, bring it all together and do a quick recap of what we discussed today. First, we talked about resilience and some of the built-in capabilities that Lambda and API Gateway come with. And also how these capabilities allow you to keep your code um, uh, you know, uh, free of any orchestration logic and have good hygiene for your code. And finally, we talked about how you can now have you know, global deployments with um, uh, cross-region failover scenarios. We then covered scalability and discussed how Lambda actually scales. Um, 
and then discuss some best uh, best practices around how you know what what are the things that you can do to improve the performance that you're getting from your serverless microservices. And finally, we uh, talked about continuous delivery and how you can have a, a process that is easy to model and reason about, and how you can deliver changes uh, across, you know, starting from uh, local development, um, uh, spanning uh, deployments to the different stages until production, and also how you can do that safely until you reach a fully automated process. So I hope now you have kind of more tools and, uh, um, and skills to go back and as you embark on your serverless journey, uh, kind of apply some of these things uh, to make your applications perform better and be more resilient. And that brings me to kind of what Nick is going to share with us. So I now want to invite Nick to share National Geographic's story with serverless and their experience with it. Nick? Thanks, David. Um, so I'm Nick, and I'm the director of platform, software platforms at National Geographic. And I'll level set a little bit of National Geographic. <coughs> so National Geographic's main purpose, the main mission, is to really further people's understanding and knowledge about the world. And it's, it's really trying to make you feel like an explorer every day in your living room. And a lot of people, when they think about National Geographic, they usually think about the TV channel and the magazine, but there's a lot more to it. So for example, there are products for travel, where you can take an expedition with an explorer. There are products for kids. We publish books. We have live events. And all of this is designed to create a 360 experience for you. And also over the years, National Geographic has really created a pretty large, strong reach. So we have around 6.4 billion content interactions across our digital properties. We reach around close to 500 million households on the TV side. We have close to 400 million followers on social. We're one of the largest brands on social on Instagram. And we're in 172 countries, 43 languages. And the real goal here, all, all of this is centered around creating entertainment with a purpose. And part of that is the National Geographic is the only media company that returns 27% of our proceeds back to the nonprofit National Geographic Society to further invest in science, exploration, conservation, and education. So as you can imagine, over the last 130 years, there's a lot of technology that's been built up. And we're really in a phase where we're going back and taking a look at all the technology and trying to modernize the technology stacks as we expand more internationally now. So the interesting part is that we actually have a lot of technology sitting in data centers in the US. And we're starting to migrate everything to the cloud. And we're really starting this journey right now. And what we're trying to focus on right now is incubating new ideas and innovation. And that's what really brings me to the product that we launched recently called AdGeo One. And this is a mobile app that we launched in Australia. And it's in partnership with the telecom Colopolis, and it's only available to subscribers of that telecom. And the goal was to try to create an application that really gives the user personalized content experience that really works well with the TV channel and the kind of content coming out there as well. And there are a couple of milestones that we hit with this application. So it is the first app that we've launched that actually has a mobile app that we launched that has content from a variety of sources. So we have the magazine content, we have TV shows, we have live video, um, and social content all coming in one app. Another part is also is the first time we really have a lot of content for 130 years coming to an application as well. And then it's the first app that we actually built in serverless. 
So it's really a learning experience that we went through as part of going from something where we use EC2s and traditional technologies and Amazon, and then try to apply serverless technology along the way. So what's the application architecture look like? This is kind of what we've landed up with, and it's kind of broken up in a couple of different phases. So the first phase is really where we're aggregating content. And we have a couple of different CMSs spread across the world. So for this application, most of the content is coming from the US and a content management system in Australia. And that's where we get personal content, localized content for the Australian market. And we have some upstream systems that aggregate this content and normalize it. But then we also have different systems for video. We have one for the US, there's a different one in Australia, live video comes from a different place, and that needs to kind of get aggregated over together as well and normalized. So we have a Node.js application that runs on EC2, and this really doesn't fit the serverless model, and this is something that I'm gonna come back and take a look at, but it's really trying to aggregate the content, normalize it, and then prepare it for delivery. So we have a couple of layers of aggregation. So as I mentioned before, we do aggregation upstream, but that's purpose is to really normalize the data model. It's not necessarily suitable for delivery at the last mile. So what, we, what this Node.js app does is really kind of prepares the data, it formats the data for what's appropriate for cloud search indexes and so on, and keeps it ready for a mobile app to use. And we also store files that we get, like image files and so on, into S3, and that brings us to the asynchronous processing where we have events on Lambda functions, so when we get a file over, like an image file, we have Lambda functions and then resize the image, crop it, and so on. We also have other Lambda functions that kind of work with the recognition servers. Uh, we have Lambda functions that keep information that's local to Australia up to date. So for example, showtimes, they need to be kept updated to that for that market. What we have in the US may not apply there. And we also have Lambda functions that really work on personalization of content as well. And the last part is the delivery side, which is mostly powered through API gateway and Lambda functions. And we have APIs really broken up into three. Uh, there's content, user and administration. And the content API is really working with the data that's in Cloud Search. So we have feeds in Cloud Search, and that's the primary source of most of the content that goes into the application. And what the user sees in different sections as they navigate around. The user API is really associated with managing user state, session, uh, what the user is doing in the application. It's kind of a read-write API, and it's really pushing data mostly back into DynamoDB. And the administration API is not really a content management API, it's more about positioning and administrating what a user can see. So for example, if you have some articles that someone de deem deems is not appropriate for the Australian market, we can go turn it off. If you find that tagging is a little bit different in the US and we want to kind of reposition the content in the, in the actual app, we can go in and say, okay, show this in a different section and more changes position in the feed. So that's what, the, that's what that API does. And while each one of these do work independently from each other, if the user API is down, you may go in and get content, but you won't get personalized content, right? So it really doesn't work well so that's where kind of things come together is while you can build things to be separate, you really need them to work together, get a full picture, and get a really good user experience. So a couple of goals that we try to do that really kind of provide value to the user, uh, one of those goals is repersonalization. And this really is powered by a lot of data that we capture in the application. So when a user goes into the application, they navigate around, we track what they look at, we track how much time they spend on different articles and different photographs and videos inside there. They can favorite a video, so they have like favorite lists, and we track that information as well. And all that gets stored in DynamoDB. And then we use Lambda function processing in the back to create a, pro a profile for this user and a custom feed in Cloud Search. And then that's really what powers personalized content that we pushed over to the user on the application side. 
And this is also an example of where or why we kind of have content stored in two places. So earlier on, when we bring content over, we put in a DynamoDB and cloud search. When we create a personalized feed, we take the raw content we put into DynamoDB and recreate the indexes and the feeds in cloud search there. We did look at Elasticsearch as an option to cloud search, and we found that we really didn't need some of the extensions that you would use with Elasticsearch. So for example, we're not doing things that would need ELK or Kibana and kind of stuff on top of it. So the simplicity of using cloud search as a managed solution just worked for us. And we have that with auto-scaling, like two nodes, to get some redundancy out of it. Now another part really we're doing personalization really is the push notifications. So once somebody comes to your app and they take a look and they browse around, they're like, okay, looks kind of cool, I'll come back later. And they really don't get a feel for when to come back. So how do you bring the, how do you bring the user back to the application? And we use SNS for this, and we support iOS and Android devices. And we allow you to kind of have as many devices as you want. So the real goal that we wanted to work around was trying to make sure we are thoughtful and respectful of the user's time. Right? So when we support multiple devices, we allow the user to pick a preferred device. I got two kids. We have like five devices between the kids and my phone sitting somewhere. And since this is designed to kind of work with the telecom, you kind of, a lot of this is maybe being used at home. So if you get a notification, you really don't want five devices buzzing at the same time, right? So you can pick a preferred one, and that kind of helps that experience get a little bit better. Also another part is we try to respect users' um, like sleep time, right? So we give you quiet hours. So while someone's editing and managing this application in the US, we don't want them to accidentally wake you up at night. So we allow you to have silent hours, quiet hours, that kind of improves the experience too. And since a lot of this is based on personalization, and a profile can sometimes recommend four things one day, but the next day a couple just fewer things. We try to limit how many push notifications we send you because the last thing we want to do is kind of become noise, right? Someone turns, you become noise, you get annoyed with the push notification, you turn it off, and then usually you don't turn it back on. Right? So, we, so what we really found is that using SNS and so on worked out well and it allowed us to really focus on the features of the application versus just trying to build out the basics of how you kind of just orchestrate and deliver push notifications. So we did hit a couple issues. So as we were building the application, we found that we had a lot of metadata on the text content. But the images didn't really have a lot of metadata. And that would really some, be something that would inhibit how we surface content that's not tied to an article. Right? So since we're trying to create an experience where you can see images, photo galleries, video, not just magazine articles, we need to make sure we can surface and personalize that. And a big part of National Geographic is the photography as well. So we have given it a choice that either we ask our producers to go back and re-tag images, um, and that would really be really cost prohibitive and time consuming. And also, because we have so much content, they have to pick and choose what they really want to tag, which really wouldn't allow us to deliver up to our promise. So this is really where recognition really helped out as a plug and play mechanism. Um, we pull it in, um, it gives us a pretty good confidence level and it worked out really well on, on label detection. And it really allowed us to do two things. Not only just surface and kind of apply metadata to content, but also give us the understanding of what's in the image. So for example, some of our asynchronous processing does some smart cropping, where we try to find a focal point in the image and then crop the image, so we don't need people to go in and crop all the images. In this case, if we find out that an image actually has a map or a chart, we don't crop it. We letterbox it, make it fit the aspect ratio, so you can see the full image. And this way, we kind of had a bit better decision-making on automated cropping. Now, a couple of issues we hit with this is that 
along the way, we had a couple of cases uh, where we were blowing past the 1.5 gigabyte um, RAM limited Lambda functions. And it took us quite a little while to find out what the issue was. And it turned out to be a really simple issue. Uh, it was like our uncompressed images in the file system were 15 megs. Uh, but when you kind of have to blow, you, you decompress it and you kind of encode it to kind of send it to recognition, it was going over 1.5 gigs. And the real lesson that we learned here was that you really don't need large images to get accuracy recognition. So we kind of go back in and we kind of process and resize the images earlier so it can be fit within that kind of um, limit, service limit. And also we found that for us at least, the average response time recognition was 1.5 to just two seconds. And that makes it not appropriate, at least for our expectation on the runtime side, something more you want to use in the background processing. But even then, right, you need to understand really how it's going to work to understand what your workload is. If you have a lot of images coming in, you have cases where you have bulk images coming in, you might do bulk, bulk, bulk migration, you, know, you might get backed up for a while. So you need to kind of understand how you want to handle the throughput, how many images you want to send, how you understand errors and logging and so on. But the real message here is you need to look at a service, understand the service, really play with it, experiment with it to kind of extract the full value of what you want to get. A couple of things that we're going to look at in the future is that really how we handle state in the application. So we have a couple of phases in the pipeline. and Right now we have Lambda managing Lambda, which is good, but it adds some complexity to the code. And that's something we're going to come back and take a look at in the future as well. Now, any mobile app is not going to be worth a salt if it's not performing, right? It means if you're sitting there and clicking for a couple, you're waiting for like five seconds, you don't get the content, you're pretty much done, you're gone. So what we found is when we used API Gateway, it really didn't add much on overhead. So there are charts on the right, um, the fact that you can't see a difference between the two lines, that means their overhead is really low, and most of the time in the duration for API Gateway really was tied to the actual integration Lambda, which is Lambda actually executing code. One thing to note is here is that we don't use authorization lambdas, and most of our authorization is done in code, so that's not really adding some overhead. Uh, on the flip side, that does make a couple of things easier for us because we just have less lambdas to manage, too. Um, the, set, the first the diagram on the left is really looking at how lambda react to our traffic spikes. And for the most part, we found that that's in blue. Uh, it was pretty consistent. Now, one thing to note here is, here is, again, it depends on what your rate of traffic spike growth is, right? For so us, the, great, the rate of growth wasn't necessarily going from 1,000 to 20,000 a second. It was a smaller growth. So we really didn't have too many challenges here. But as you build this out, you need to kind of understand what your traffic expectations might be and then really fine-tune and optimize. And David did a really good job talking about the container lifecycle and how you optimize. And that's, that's a, there's a key message there. With serverless, is really easy to get started, and that's really part of the beauty of serverless. But at the same time, if you really want to use it well, you need to understand uh, how it really works. You need to understand the service limits. You need to understand why the service limits are there. How is architected behind the scenes? And once you understand that better, you can really extract more value out of your services and how you can use the system. And that's a case where if you understand cold starts versus warm starts, what's the pattern of traffic going to be in the application, it helps you out. So in our case, when we don't use the authorization lambda, and we have one lambda per API, it simplifies our backup solution for how we want to keep, you know, keep, warm, keep the lambdas warm. Right? So you really need to look at that and really spend some time with it. Um, just because you can get started early doesn't mean it's going to perform right there on day one. 
A couple of things also we kind of hit on is their DynamoDB performance was pretty good for us. And part of that was we tried to separate read table versus write tables as much as possible. In some cases, you can't, and you have tables that do both. But if you can, then you can try to optimize your partition logic and your sort keys on DynamoDB tables for that purpose that helps you get some benefit out of it as well. And that really just goes to illustrate the earlier point on understanding the service a little bit deeper. So what's next for us? Right? So as I mentioned before, we have Lambda code managing Lambda code. And in some cases, that's really good to do. In some cases, it's not. So we want to go back and take a look at some of the features that were launched while we were in development and see if that's going to be useful to us. So step functions is one. If that doesn't work out, we might look at a simple workflow service and see how that fits in. Um, we really have version one of our personalization service right now. And it's great when you have nothing and you have something. It really gets you forward. It really allows you to understand how your users interact with our service. So it's really beneficial. Um, but now we want to go back and take a look. How, how do we take that further? Right, so a couple of things we want to go back and kind of really iterate on on our side. And another part that really comes up also is metrics. So you get a good, healthy number of metrics with CloudWatch. But you, there are cases where you're going to need to go in and put custom metrics in, depending on what you want to look at. And we, have, we do have some. But we need to go back and add some more. And custom metrics can be tricky, because if you're trying to compensate for some metrics you're used to in the old world that's not available now, and you're trying to design it out, you could have an error in your own metric logic that kind of now gives you a positive of how things are working. Um, so we need to go back and take a look at how that works and how we kind of enhance that to get some more visibility as well. So in, in short, really, we really had a good experience, our first experience with serverless. Uh, we found that a lot of scaling issues, really, we didn't have to worry about it. It worked out of the box uh, as long as we spent the time to understand the system. And all this really allowed us to spend time on feature development, which is really where you want to be, right? So it's great with Amazon that you can pay as you go, and that's really cool. But also spending time on the right features is really important. I mean, every user expects in the mobile apps to get updated every two weeks in the app store. You're going to be doing a lot of development of the apps and improving features. So you want to make sure you're keeping in mind the opportunity cost of not working on the right features. Because your goal is to create a good product experience. What we found was that using serverless tech so far allowed us to really focus on the experience of the application, not on genetic orchestration that we don't need to use, and also use some ready-made features that we don't have to build ourselves. So hopefully, um, that was some useful information for you. And if you try it out, as I would recommend you do, you know, come back and share your experience as well. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Nick and I will hang outside for a little bit to uh, answer any questions that you might have. So uh, yeah, please feel free to, to ask any questions. Thank you. Thanks.